The Strand Magazine, an illustrated monthly, edited by George Nuthus, Volume 1, January to June 1891. A Deadly Dilemma, by Grant Allen. When Kate Burley came to think it over afterward, in her own room by herself, she couldn't imagine what had made her silly enough to quarrel that evening with George Weston. She could only say, in a penitent mood, it was always the way like that with lovers, till once they've quarrelled a good round quarrel, and afterwards solemnly kissed and made it all up again, things never stand on a really firm and settled basis between them. It's a move in the game. You must thrust in tears before you thrust in court. The Roman playwright spoke the truth after all. A lover's quarrel begins a fresh chapter in the history of their love-making. It was a summer evening, calm and clear and balmy, and Kate and George had strolled out together, not without a suspicion at times of hand locked in hand, on the low hills that rise gently behind Warwickshire's county town. How or why they fell out she hardly knew, but they had been engaged already some months without a single disagreement, which of course gave Kate a natural right to quarrel with George by this time, if she thought fit and as they returned down the hanging path through the comb where the wild orchids grow, she used that right at last, out of pure, unadulterated feminine perversity. The ways of women are wonderful, no mere man fathomed them. Something that George said gave her the chance to make a half-petulant answer. George very naturally defended himself from the imputation of rudeness, and Kate retorted, At the end of ten minutes the trifle had grown apace into as pretty a lover's quarrel as any lady novelist could wish to describe in five chapters. Kate had burst into perfectly orthodox tears, refused to be comforted in the most approved fashion, declined to accept George's escort home and bid him farewell for ever and ever. It was all about nothing to be sure— and if two older or wiser heads had only stood by unseen to view the little drama, they would sagely have remarked to one another, with a shake of the head, that before twenty-four hours were out the pair would be rushing into one another's arms with mutual apologies and mutual forgiveness. But Kate Burley and George Weston were still at the age when one takes love seriously, and so they turned away along the different paths at the bottom of the comb, in the firm belief that love's young dream was shattered, and that henceforth they too were nothing more than the merest acquaintances to one another. "'Goodbye, Mr. Weston,' Kate faltered out, as, in obedience to her wishes, though much against his own will, Weston turned slowly and remorsefully down the footpath to the right, in the direction of the railway. "'Goodbye, Kate,' George answered, half-choking." Even at the moment of parting, for ever or a day, he couldn't find it in his heart to call her Miss Burley, who had so long been Kate to him. He waved his hand and turned along the footpath, looking back many times to see Kate still sitting, inconsolable where he had left her, on the stile that led from the comb into the four-acre meadow. Both paths to right and left led back to Warwick, over the open field, but they diverged rapidly and crossed the railway track by separate gates and five hundred yards from each other. A turn in the path at which George lingered long hid Kate at last from his sight. He paused and hesitated. It was growing late, though an hour of summer twilight still remained. He couldn't bear to leave Kate thus alone in the field. 
She wouldn't allow him to see her home, to be sure, and that being so, he was too much of a gentleman to force himself upon her. But he was too much of a man to let her find her way back so late entirely by herself. Unseen, he must still watch over her. Against her will, he must still protect her. He would go on to the railway and there sit by the side of the line, under cover of the hedge, till Kate crossed by the other path. Then he'd walk quietly along the six-foot way to the gate she had passed through and follow her, unperceived at a distance along the lane, till he saw her back to Warwick. Whether she wished it or not, he could never leave her. He looked about for a seat and found one most handy by the side of the line. The railway engineers had been at work that day, repairing the telegraph system. They had taken down half a dozen mouldering posts and set up new ones in their place, tall, clean and shiny. One of the old posts still lay at full length on the ground by the gate, just as the men had left it at the end of their day's work. At the point where the path cut the line was a level crossing, and there George sat down on the fallen post, half concealed from view by a tall willow herb, waiting patiently for Kate's coming. How he listened for that light footfall. His heart was full, indeed, of gall and bitterness. He loved her so dearly, and she had treated him so ill. Who would ever have believed that Kate, his Kate, would have thrown him over like that for such a ridiculous trifle? Who indeed, and least of all Kate herself, sitting alone on the stile, with her pretty face bowed deep in her hands, and her poor heart wondering how George, her George, could so easily desert her. In such strange ways is the feminine variety of the human heart constructed. To be sure, she had of course dismissed him in the most peremptory fashion, declaring with all the vows propriety permits to the English maiden that she needed no escort of any sort home, and that she would ten thousand times rather go alone than have him accompany her. But of course, she didn't mean it. What woman does? She counted upon a prompt and unconditional surrender. George would go on to the corner as in duty bound, and then come back to her, with profuse expressions of penitence for the wrong he had never done, to make it all up again in the orthodox fashion. She never intended the real tragedy that was soon to follow. She was only playing with her victim, only trying, womanlike, her power over George. So she sat there still and cried and cried, minute after minute, in an ecstasy of misery, till the sunset began to glow deeper red in the western sky, and the bell to ring from St. Mary's Church, Warwick. Then it dawned upon her slowly, with a shock of surprise, that after all, incredible, impossible, George had positively taken her at her word, and wasn't coming back at all tonight to her. At that, the usual womanly terror seized upon her soul. Her heart turned faint. This was too terrible. Great heavens, what had she done? Had she tried George too far? And had he really gone? Was he never going to return to her at all? Had he said goodbye in earnest to her for ever and ever? Terrified at the thought and weak with crying, she rose and falteringly walked down the narrow footpath toward the further crossing. It was getting late now, and Kate by this time was really frightened. She wished with all her heart she hadn't sent George away. A man can be such a comfort when there were tramps and a dreadful dog at Milton Court to pass. But George was gone, and all the world was desolate. 
Thinking these things in a tumult of fear to herself, she staggered along the path, feeling tired at heart and positively ill with remorse and terror. The colour had faded now out of her red cheeks. Her eyes were dim and swollen with crying. She was almost half glad that George couldn't see her just then. She was such a fright with her long spell of brooding. Even her bright print dress and her straw hat with the poppies in it couldn't redeem, she felt sure, her pallor and her wretchedness. But George was gone, and the world was a wilderness, and he would never come back, and the dog at Milton Court, which was so vicious, awaited her. As she walked, or rather groped her way, for she couldn't see for crying, down the path by the hedge, at every step she grew fainter and fainter. George was gone, and her world was a blank, and there were tramps and dogs to contend with, and it was getting dark, and she loved him so much, and her mother would be so angry. Turning over her thoughts with a whirling brain, she reached the little swing gate that led to the railway, and pushed it aside with vague and numbed hands, and stood gazing vacantly at the long curved line in front of her. Suddenly a noise rose sharp in the field behind her, it was a colt, to be sure, disturbed by her approach, dashing wildly across his paddock, as is the way with young horseflesh. But to Kate it came as an indefinite terror, magnified ten thousandfold by her excited feelings. She made a frenzied dash for the other side of the railway. What it was she knew not, but it was, or might be, anything, everything, mad bulls, drunken men, or murderers. Oh, how could George ever have taken her at her word and left her like this, alone and in the evening? It was cruel, it was wicked of him. She hated to be disloyal, and yet she felt in her heart it was almost unmanly. As she rushed along wildly at the top of her speed, her little foot caught on the first rail. Before she knew what had happened, she had fallen, with her body outstretched across the line. Faint and terrified already with a thousand vague alarms, the sudden shock stunned and disabled her. Mad bull or drunken man, they might do as they like now. She was bruised and shaken. She had no thought left to rise or recover herself. Her eyes closed heavily. She lost unconsciousness at once. It was a terrible position. She had fainted on the line with the stress of her situation. As for George, from his seat on the telegraph post on the side of the line five hundred yards further up, he saw her pause by the gate, then dash across the track, then stumble and trip, then fall heavily forward. His heart came up into his mouth at once at the sight. Oh, thank heaven he had waited. Thank heaven he was there. Thank heaven he was near. She had fallen across the line, and a train might come along before she could rise up again. She seemed hurt, too. In a frenzy of suspense, he darted forward to save her. It took but a second for him to realise that she had fallen and was seriously hurt, but in the course of that second, even as he realised it all, another and more pressing terror seized him. What was that? He listened and thrilled. It must be a train. He knew it. He felt it. Along the upline on which Kate was lying, he heard behind him. Oh, unmistakable, unthinkable, the fierce whir of the express dashing madly down upon him. Great heavens, what could he do? The train was coming. The train, he feared, was almost at this very moment upon them, before he could have time to rush wildly forward and snatch Kate from where she lay, full in its path, a helpless weight. 
It would have swept past him relentlessly and borne down upon her like lightning. The London Express was coming to crush Kate to nothing. In these awful moments men don't think, they don't reason, they don't even realise what their action might mean. They simply act, and act instinctively. George felt in a second, without even consciously feeling it, that any attempt to reach Kate now, before that devouring engine had burst upon her at full speed, would be absolutely hopeless. His one chance lay in stopping the train somehow. How, or where, or with what, he cared not. His own body would do if nothing else came. Only stop it, he must. He didn't think of the train at that moment as a set of carriages containing a precious freight of human lives. He thought of it only as a horrible, cruel, devouring creature, rushing headlong at full speed to Kate's destruction. It was a senseless wild beast to be combated at all hazards. It was a hideous, ruthless, relentless thing to be choked in its mad career in no matter what fashion. All he knew indeed was that Kate, his Kate, lay helpless on the track and that the engine, like some madman, puffing and snorting with wild glee and savage exultation, was hastening forward with fierce strides to crush and mangle her. At any risk he must stop it, with anything, anyhow. As he gazed around him horror-struck, with blank inquiring stare and with this one fixed idea possessing his whole soul, George's eye fell upon the dismantled telegraph post on which, but one minute before, he had been sitting. The sight inspired him. A glorious chance. He could lift it on the line. He could lay it across the rails. He could turn it round into place. He could upset the train. He would place it in the way of the murderous engine. No sooner thought than done. With the wild energy of despair, the young man lifted the small end of the ponderous post bodily up in his arms and twisting it on the big base as on an earth-fast pivot, managed by superhuman force and with a violent effort to lay it at last full in front of the advancing locomotive. How he did it he never rightly knew, for the weight of that great bulk was simply enormous. But horror and love and the awful idea that Kate's life was at stake seemed to supply him at once with enormous energy. He lifted it in his arms as he would have lifted a child and strained in every limb, stretched it at last full across both rails. A formidable obstacle before the approaching engine. Yes, he had succeeded now. It would throw the train off the line and Kate would be saved for him. To think and do all this under the spare of the circumstances took George something less than twenty seconds. In a great crisis men live rapidly. It was quick as thought, and at the end of it all he saw the big log laid right across the line with infinite satisfaction. Such a splendid obstacle that, so round and heavy, it must throw the train clean off the metals, it must produce a fine first-class catastrophe. As he thought it, Half aloud, a sharp curve brought the train round the corner, close to where he stood, great drops of sweat now oozing clamorly from every pore with his exertion. He looked at it languidly with some vague dim sense of a duty accomplished and a great work well done for Kate and humanity. There would be a real live accident in a moment now, a splendid accident, a first-rate catastrophe. Great heavens! An accident! And then, with a sudden burst of inspiration, the other side of the transaction flashed in one electric spark upon George's brain. 
Why, this is murder. There were people in that train, innocent human beings, men and women like himself, who would next minute be wrecked and mangled corpses or writhing forms on the track before him. He was guilty of a crime, an awful crime. He was trying to produce a terrible, ghastly, bloody railway accident. Till that second, the idea had never even so much as occurred to him. In the first wild flush of horror at Kate's situation, he had thought of nothing except her best to save her. He had regarded the engine only as a hateful, cruel, destructive living being. He had forgotten the passengers, the conductor, the guard, the driver. He had been conscious only of Kate, and of that awful thing beating down upon her to destroy her. For another indivisible second of time, George Weston's soul was the theatre of a terrible and appalling struggle. What on earth was he to do? Which of the two was he to sacrifice? Should it be murder or treachery? Must he wreck the train or let it mangle Kate? The sweat stood upon his brow in great clammy drops at the deadly dilemma. It was an awful question for any man to solve. He shrank aghast before that deadly decision. They were innocent to be sure, the people in that train. They were unknown men, women and children. They had the same right to their lives as Kate herself. It was a crime, a terrible crime this, to seek to destroy them. But still, what could he do? Kate lay there all helpless on the line, his own dear Kate. And she had parted from him in anger but half an hour since. Could he leave her to be destroyed by that hideous, rumbling, threatening thing? Has not any man the right to try and save the lives he loves best, no matter at what risk or peril to others? He asked himself this question, vaguely and instinctively, with the rapid haste of a life-and-death struggle, asked himself with horror, for he had no strength left now to do one thing or the other, to remove the obstacle from the place where he had laid it, or to save his Kate. One second alone remained, and all would be over. On it came, roaring, flaring, glaring, with this great bull's eye now peering red round the corner, a terrible, fiery dragon, restless, unconscious, bearing down in mad glee upon the pole or Kate. Which of the two should it be, the passengers or Kate? And still he waited, and still he temporised. What, what could he do? Oh, heaven, be merciful! Even as the engine swept snorting and rumbling round the corner, he doubted yet, he doubted and temporised. He reasoned with his own conscience in the quick shorthand of thought. So far as intent was concerned, he was guiltless. He wouldn't be a murderer of malice prepense. When he laid that log there in the way of the train, he never believed, nay, never even knew it was a train with a living freight of men and women he was trying to imperil. He felt it merely as a mad engine, detached from anything. He realised only Kate's pressing danger. Was he bound now to undo what he had innocently done, and leave Kate to perish? Must he take away the enormous log and be Kate's murderer? It was a cruel dilemma for any man to have to face. If he had half an hour to debate and decide now, he might perhaps have seen his way a little clearer. But that hideous thing, actually rushing red and wrathful in his sight, why, he clapped his hands to his ears. It was too much, too much for him. And yet he must face it and act, or remain passive, one way or the other. With a desperate effort he made up his mind at last, just as the train was about to burst upon him, and all would be over. 
he made up his mind and acted accordingly. As the engine turned the corner, the driver, looking ahead in the clear evening light, saw something in front that made him start with sudden horror and alarm. A telegraph pole lay stretched at full length, and a man, unknown, stood agonised by its side, stooping down, as he thought, to catch and move it. There was no time left to stop now, no time to avert the threatened catastrophe. All the driver could do was to put the brake on hard and endeavour to lessen the force of the inevitable concussion. But even as he looked and wondered at the sight, putting on the brake with all his might, he saw the man in front perform to his surprise a heroic action. Rushing full upon the line, straight before the very lights of the advancing train, the unknown man lifted up the pole by superhuman force and, brandishing its end wildly in the driver's face, hurled the huge bulk back with terrible effort to the side of the track. It fell with a crash, and the man fell with it. There was a second's pause while the driver's heart stood still with terror. Then a jar, a thud, a deep gouge into the earth. A wheel was off the line. They had met with an accident. For a moment or two the driver only knew that he was shaken and hurt, but not dead. The engine had left the track and the carriages lay behind, slightly tilted. He could see how it happened. Part of the pole in falling had rebounded onto the line. The base of the great timber had struck the near side wheel and sent it off the track in a vain effort to surmount it. But the brake had already slackened the pace and broken the force of the shock so the visible damage was only slight. He must look along the carriages and find out who was hurt, and above all to thank the man who had so bravely rescued them. But he was nowhere to be seen. The last thing the driver had seen of George as the train stopped short was that the man who flung the pole from the track before the advancing engine was knocked down by its approach, while the train, to all appearance, ran him down. For good or evil, George had made his decision at the last possible moment and risked his own life. As the train dashed on with its living freight aboard, his native instinct of preserving life got the better of him in spite of himself, or perhaps because of himself. He couldn't let those innocent souls die by his own act, though if he removed the pole and Kate was killed, he didn't know how he could ever outlive it. He prayed with all his heart that the train might kill him. The guard and the driver ran hastily along the train. Nobody was hurt, though many were shaken or bruised. Even the carriages had escaped with a few small cracks. The crash was not as serious as it could have been. But the man with the pole, their preserver, their friend, where was he all this time? What on earth had become of him? They looked along the line. They searched the track in vain. He had disappeared as if by magic. Not a trace could be found of him. After looking long and uselessly again and again, the guard and the driver both gave it up. They had seen the man distinctly, not a doubt about that, and so had several of the passengers as well. But no sign of blood was to be discovered along the track. The mysterious being who, as they all believed, risked his own life to save theirs, had vanished, as he had come, one might almost say, by a miracle. For George Weston, it was a miracle, for as he fell on the track before the advancing engine, he thought for a moment it was all up with him. He was glad of that too, for he had murdered Kate. He saved the train, but he murdered Kate. It would dash on, now, mercilessly, and crush his darling to death. It was better he should die, 
having murdered his beloved Kate, so he closed his eyes tight, held his breath, and waited for it to kill him. But the train passed on, jarring and screeching, partly with the action of the brake, partly, too, with the wheels digging into the ground at the side of the rails. It passed over him, coming, as it did so, to a shuddering halt. As it stopped, a fierce joy rose uppermost in George's soul. Thank heaven all was well. He breathed once more. He had fallen on his back across the sleepers in between the rails. It was not really the train that had knocked him down at all, but the recoil of the telegraph post. The engine and the carriages had gone over him safely. He wasn't seriously hurt. He was only bruised, a few scratches, jarred and shaken. Rising up, he ran hastily along the offside of the train towards where Kate lay, still unconscious on the line in front of it. Nobody saw him run past, and no wonder either, for every eye was turned toward the near side of the obstruction. A person running fast by the opposite windows was very unlikely to attract attention at such a moment. Every step pained him, to be sure, for he was bruised and stiff, but he ran on nonetheless till he came up at last to where Kate lay. There he bent over her eagerly. Kate raised her head, opened her eyes and looked at him. In a moment the vague sense of a terrible catastrophe averted came over her. She flung her arms round his neck. "'Oh, George, you've come back to me,' she cried in a torrent of emotion. "'Yes, darling,' George answered, his voice half choked with tears. "'I've come back to you now and for ever.' He lifted her in his arms and carried her some little way off, up the left-hand path. His heart was very full. It was a terrible moment, for as yet he hardly knew what harm he might have done by his fatal act. He only knew he had tried his best to undo the wrong he had half unconsciously wrought, and if the worst came he would give himself up now like a man to offended justice. But the worst did not come. Blind fate had been merciful. Next day the papers were full of the accident to the Great Western Railway, equally divided between denunciation of the miscreant who had placed the obstruction in the way of the train and admiration for the heroic but unknown stranger who had rescued them from certain death, so many helpless passengers and crew at so imminent a risk to his own life and safety. Only George knew that the two were one and the same person. And when George found out how little harm had been done by his infatuated act, an act he felt he could never possibly explain in its true light to any other person, he thought it wisest, on the whole, to not lay claim to either the praise or the censure. The world could never be made to understand the terrible deadly dilemma in which he was placed, the one-sided way in which the problem at first presented itself to him, the deadly struggle through which he had passed before he could make up his mind, at the risk of Kate's life, to remove the obstacle. Only Kate understood, and even Kate herself knew no more than this, that George had risked his own life to save her. The End of the Strand Magazine A Deadly Dilemma by Grant Allen With narration by Edward Kirkby This is an Audio Theatre UK production, for more information or to volunteer, please visit audiotheatre.uk.